Well, one of the things I, I love most about my, my vocation as a pastor is spending time with people. I mean, imagine that, right? That's probably a good skill to have or a good love to have. But what I like is, is hearing the different ways that God has introduced himself to people. It, it never ceases to amaze me just how many different ways God can think up to introduce himself to us. Sometimes it happens through a family member or a friend. Sometimes it happens uh, to someone who's been attending church forever and all of a sudden, one Sunday, the word just comes alive to that person. The living God reveals himself in limitless ways. But one thing I've never heard someone say is, I came to a living relationship with Christ because the preacher gave me really good advice, or because the Bible gave me these really good rules to follow, or because following Jesus is a surefire way to get rich, or because following Jesus will make you a superhero. I've never heard someone say those reasons were the reasons they... They begin to have a living relationship with Christ. No matter how many ways God reveals himself, the deciding factor to most people I've talked with, the moment they say Jesus really won their heart, was the day they realized that following Jesus is relational. Relational. Now, since February, we have been exploring Jesus' most succinct and, and many say one of his most powerful teachings. His manifesto, if you will, on what life in the kingdom of God can look like. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And today we get to the very center of that sermon. I mean, literally, like it's right in the middle of the sermon. The very crux, or you could think of it as the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what would you expect when you get to the heart of Jesus's, one of his most famous teachings? What, what would you think would be there? Like some magical, awesome proverb, or maybe the golden rule, or maybe the secret to a life of power in the Holy Spirit. God's guide to success in life. I mean, what's going to be at the center of Jesus's teaching? Well, I think you already know the answer. It's, it's a prayer. Jesus gives us a prayer at the center of his vision for life in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's face it, at face value, it kind of seems a little disappointing, doesn't it? We're all people, most of us, who like to do things. We're Americans, and what do Americans do? We produce stuff. That's one reason I think prayer can be so difficult. It doesn't feel like we're really doing anything. Listen to what Dallas Willard writes about the tension between doing and praying. We human beings have two different kinds of causation, which means we have two different ways we can get stuff done. Okay, One is entirely under our control. The other, which works through request, is not. So, if you have weeds in your garden or a flat tire, it will be better not just to pray that the weeds will die or the tire be fixed. You can, of course, ask somebody to help you with that, and they may or may not refuse. But you'd better just pull the weeds and fix the tire if you can. Basically, that's your dom domain by nature. That's your domain. It's, it's your domain by divine appointment. But... If you have a, a friend who's addicted to heroin or lost in the jungles of intellectual faddishness, then whatever else you may do to help this person, you'd better pray. Not just because fixing your friend is beyond you, but because it is good 
that it is beyond you. See, part of our desire, I think, is to get busy and do things. And I think we have that desire because we were created to work. We were created to take care of God's earth. We were created to to express God's goodness and love. When we see needs in our community or throughout the world, we would do good. We would do well to meet those needs, whether it's financial need or health care or clothing or food or water, whatever it is. When we see needs, we are created by God to meet those needs. But... There are areas in life and in the world where our best efforts are not enough. There are areas where evil has created such horrible systems of oppression and abuse that that giving a drink of water here or, or some clothes there is not going to solve the overall problem. There are people who need just a basic cup of water or the basic necessities. But unless God intervenes, there's not a lot of hope for real change, lasting change. And it's this higher level mission of lasting change, of overthrowing evil structures, if you will. It's that mission that Jesus invites us into through prayer. Blaise Pascal called this the dignity of causality. The dignity of causality. That God actually gives us the dignity of joining in His rescue mission. He doesn't say we can do it, but He says we can be part of it by lifting others up in prayer. That sounds awesome to me. So wait a minute, you're saying I can't fix the world, but you can, and when I pray that you would do that, it makes a difference. That's awesome. But you're also looking at a realist. And I know that as awesome as that might feel right now, in an hour, you're going to be eating. And in a day, you'll you'll have forgotten most of what I say. And in a week, you'll be looking at the next sermon. And in a month, I will have forgotten what I said. That's that's the reality. Although these sermons are online, so you can always check. (laughs) Prayer is difficult. It is one of the most difficult disciplines, if you will, of the Christian life. It can feel mundane. We can have doubts rise up about, is this even doing anything? Whether you're a beginner or you've been praying for a long time, in some form or another, you're going to struggle with maybe one of these questions. How long should I pray? How often should I pray? How do I pray? Why should I pray? What should I say when I pray? And to these questions, I have really good news. Or actually, Jesus does. I'm just going to copy him. He says, one, uh, well, he gives us in his Lord's Prayer the ultimate prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a template for inspiring us to a life of prayer. It's It's a great beginning point. So whenever we don't know where to begin, we can begin there. Second, the prayer Jesus taught us contains good news within it. Tertullian of Carthage, one of the early church fathers, said, The Lord's Prayer, of all the texts in Scripture, the Lord's Prayer is an abridgment of the entire gospel. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew's gospel is made up of six petitions. And this evening we're going to look at the first three. Before we get to those petitions, though, those things that we're asking for, Jesus has to undo some bad thinking in us. And he begins uh, his Lord's Prayer curiously with this line. 
And when you're praying, he says, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, pagans believed that they had to woo their gods. They had to butter them up in order to get them to do what they wanted. So they would use flattery. They would uh, use these long prayers and just call their God every, every good name in the book. They would use magic, uh, saying just the right words. If they got the words wrong, then the gods might not answer their prayers. Or they would be just persistent. They would say the same mantras over and over and over again, trying to wear their gods down. They would do one of those three things, or maybe a combination of all of those three things. And here's what Jesus is contending against in saying, do not be like them. Jesus is contending against the assumption that through human effort, we can manipulate God into doing what we want. If we pray the right way. If we pray long enough. Have you ever felt that way? I I know at times I have prayed like the pagans Jesus is talking about. I've thought in my mind, if I just would have prayed harder or longer or better, maybe that would not have happened. Or maybe I'm faced with a situation I think, I need to just figure this out and spend more time doing this, and then maybe God would hear me then. If I just used the right words, God would answer my prayer. Now, Jesus, what he's doing here is freeing us up from thinking that way. He's saying, you don't need to act like the pagans because God isn't like their gods. God is a father who's close at hand and knows our needs even before we ask him. This great news because the more my relationship with Jesus grows, the more I know myself and the more I've come to realize I don't even know what I really need. Half the time my prayers are so off-kilter or so askew towards my own selfish desires that I'm so thankful God doesn't give me half the stuff I pray for. Daryl Johnson writes, We think we understand ourselves, our desires, our longings, our fears. We do not. But the Father does. This frees us from having to pray correctly as if we could. It also frees us from having to say a lot. I like what Dale Bruner writes. Prayer is not an intelligence briefing for God. Right? Like you don't have to tell him everything that's going on. Prayer is an intelligent conversation with God. God is not going to not do something in your life because you forgot to mention it in prayer. Right? He already knows what you need before you ask him. But he likes us to engage with him in intelligent relationship. So, if God knows what we need before we ask him, why do we pray at all? I mean, what's the point? The pragmatist in me wants to know the answer to that question. But the question itself kind of reveals my own lack of understanding what prayer really is. Prayer is not an exchange for goods and services. Like, I put in this much time for prayer, I get this from God, right? One man said, prayer is what happens when our souls touch God's soul. It's about relationship. It's about relationship. Remember how I was saying, I've never talked to a person who really started to follow Christ for any other reason besides relationship. Prayer 
is an incredible privilege. We are invited to commune with the living God. And Jesus says we can approach this God as a loving Father. So as we get into this prayer, I want to point out the obvious. It is Jesus who teaches us to pray this way. And what that means to me is that whenever I feel like I don't know where to begin, or when I feel like I don't know what to say or how to say it, or if my focus is correct, like if I'm doubting my motives in prayer, I can trust that what Jesus teaches us to pray here is a great place to start. Rachel Knutson, our very own, says that prayer, the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer, is like an icebreaker for her to get started in prayer with God. I like that image. It's like an icebreaker. So let's take a look at Jesus' prayer as it would be understood in the original language. Let's put that slide up there, Ian. I want you to check out the structure of how this would be. So basically, I just kind of took the Greek text and I put English right where the Greek words are. And here's the actual order. Father, our, the one in the heavens, be hallowed your name. Come your kingdom. Be done your will on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to get to that second part next week. But those first three petitions are what we'll be dealing with. And I want you to notice something. Look at the imperatives. Nowhere else in scripture are we told to tell God anything. Do you, you get that? And in fact, uh, in this culture especially, like, I don't know, maybe we're more, a little more lackadaisical in our culture. Our kids sometimes get away with telling us stuff. And, we, well, say please. You know, but in this culture, you would have got the smackdown for talking to a superior by telling them something, right? And so Jesus says, here you can tell God really nice. Now, the, what you don't see here is that these imperatives are called imperative passives, which means it's like, it's like saying it like this. Be hallowed your name, please. Come, your kingdom, please. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the idea. But the imperatives are first. One of the reasons, and it's really gospel reasons, it's really good news, is that nowhere in this prayer does this have anything to do with us bringing God's kingdom or us hallowing his name or us making his will done in our lives. Jesus knows that that's beyond us. And so he teaches us to pray that God would do those things. Right? Father, our, the one in the heavens. First of all, we see Jesus is teaching us to pray to God as Father. And again, this stresses not only the relationship we can have with God, but the familial relationship. I mean, you have relationships with all kinds of people. You can have a relationship with the meanest person in your life. You still have a relationship. You don't like them. That's what your relationship is. But here Jesus invites us to a relationship with God, and it's a familial relationship. It's God as Father. When we come to trust and follow Jesus, we become part of this royal family. We get direct access to Jesus' Father, who becomes our Father. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, or allow it to be a catalyst for our own prayers, we can't help but begin starting in the right spot. I don't know if you ever get anxious about, like, I don't even know where to begin in prayer. This is a great place to begin. If you notice, there's nothing about our own desires in this first part of the prayer. In fact, in the first three petitions, they're all about God, His name, and His kingdom, and His will. And the second thing I want to point out is that it's impossible for us to be selfish when we pray this prayer. It, 
this was we brought this up in our small group this week, and a lot of us felt like, man, when I do pray, it's usually when I'm in a bind or when I just want something. And so, you know, last week at church we talked about our motives behind the reasons. You know, why do we do the things we do? Why do we pray? Why do we give? Why do we fast? If you're ever wondering about your own motives in prayer, you can start here. It gets us off on the right foot. We recognize that we're praying to the Father, and we can't be selfish because it's all in the plural. It's all about our Father. It doesn't say, my Father who is in heaven. It's a family prayer. And when we pray the prayer that Jesus taught, we can imagine, when you pray this, you can imagine lifting up every brother and sister in Christ from every local congregation, from every city, from every country in the world. Our Father, who is in heaven. So Father, relational. Our, communal. The one in the heavens. By teaching us to include the one in the heavens in his prayer, Jesus reminds us at least two things about this God to whom we're praying. First, the heavens is not so much like, it's not a GPS location like, where are you? Well, I'm at Letter Street's Covenant Church. Where's God? He's in heaven. So it's not so much of a physical location as it is like a metaphorical language to describe God's omnipresence, his otherness. He exists in a way that, that, that we can't really describe. We can't comprehend it fully. In theological terms, he's transcendent. He's wholly other. He's without beginning or end. There are no words that, that perfectly, adequately describe God. Second, in biblical terms, we are surrounded by the heavens all the time. So, like, heaven's like not this... This weird thing way far away, like Dante's books have kind of led us to believe in popular thinking. The heavens are the atmosphere in which we live. God is very close at hand. He doesn't stand aloof at an unreachable distance. So when we pray, our Father, the one in the heavens, we're expressing that God is very near. He's very near. Because the heavens touch earth all over the place. So we begin our prayer with the acknowledgement that God is our Father, that He is our Father, and that He's not only a holy God, He is very much that, but He's also very near and accessible and approachable. And then Jesus says, now remember Jesus, the one who knows the heart of the Father intimately. He teaches us to begin our prayer with three petitions. Three requests of God. So, if Jesus knows the Father so well, and wants us to share in this relationship too, He must know exactly the most important things to pray. He must know exactly what God wants us to pray. So why does He tell us to pray that God would make... Or why doesn't He say, the first part of the prayer, Make me more like Jesus. I mean, that would make sense to me. Uh, or why doesn't he say, pray for power to do more miracles? Or, give me the ability to advance your kingdom. He doesn't give us any of those things to pray. What is shockingly absent to our fragile self-esteems is that there's nothing in the beginning of this prayer directly about us. Nothing about you or me. It's a little bit of a shock to my pride. 
What's even more strange is that at the surface, uh, on a surface level, the first thing Jesus has us pray is that the Father's name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. It's not exactly the most pressing need in the world, is it? Or is it? One of the evil one's greatest strategies is to cause us to doubt the Father's goodness, the Father's love. It was this first lie that happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had unbroken relationship with God. And the evil one came in and tempted them to doubt God's goodness. And when they began to doubt his goodness, they took matters into their own hands. They took the forbidden fruit, thus making themselves God. Making themselves the decision makers of their lives. I think the social ills of our world, the violence, the selfishness we see, is really a result either of people making themselves gods, or making God into our own image. That's why Jesus tells us to pray that the Father's name would be hallowed. Literally, that the Father's reputation, His identity, would be made known for what it really is, for who He really is. That God would make Himself known to every man, woman, and child as He really is, not as we invent Him to be. And when we're confronted with our incredibly holy and incredibly loving Father, we begin to trust Him and worship Him, which frees us to love one another without competition and without fear. So perhaps what the world actually needs more than anything else is for the Father to make Himself known on earth as it is in heaven, to make His name hallowed. That makes a lot more sense. And then we're told to pray that the Father would bring His kingdom, His rule, His way to earth just as it is in heaven. Notice, fellow American do-it-yourselfer Christian brothers and sisters, that He does not tell us to pray that we would bring the kingdom. Just as He doesn't tell us to pray that we would make His name hallowed. No, Jesus knows that these tasks are above our pay grade. Right? He knows that only God can really do these things. But he invites you and I to play a part in it. So we pray, come, your kingdom, please. Because there are rival kingdoms. Just look at the world we live in. And the rival societies that we form, we experience death and pain and injustice and inequality and greed. So far, to my knowledge, no government or philosophy or ideology has provided a solution to sin and its effects. We pray, come, your kingdom. Because deep down, there, we know there must be something better, something deeper, something other. Deep down, we're actually, I think, desperate for God to actually be God. And here's where this part of the prayer becomes dangerous. When we pray, come your kingdom, we're at the same time saying, come your kingdom and no one else's kingdom. Your kingdom and not America's kingdom. Your kingdom and not my kingdom. When we pray your kingdom come, we're not praying for whatever we want. 
whatever we think God's kingdom should be like. We're praying that God's kingdom would come as it actually exists. And when we pray that, we're praying for nothing short of revolution. And revolutions always cost something. They require change. Again, I'm quoting Dale Bruner here. He says, Every time we pray, Thy kingdom come, we should in the same breath pray, Lord, help me to want Your kingdom to come. Finally, we pray, Be done Your will as it is in heaven. Please. We're calling on our Father in heaven to displace our will and other wills so that His will would be done. There's a clash of wills in the world. In our house, we're dealing with a two-year-old figuring out her boundaries. For any of you who have been on the receiving end of of a Stella scream, you know that there are conflicting wills in the world. In fact, I I understand that the the funny thing with the new babies born is, well, my kid's loud and screams, oh, but it's as loud as Stella. So I guess she's like the baseline now. God's will that we're praying for is a challenge to our wills. It's saying, you're praying for God's will to be done, but not your own. But at the same time, God's will isn't, isn't there to take away all of our fun. In the Greek word for will here is thelema, which actually has a connotation of good pleasure. So you could, you could say, be done your good pleasure on earth as it is in heaven. Father, your good pleasure be done. And what is the Father's good pleasure? What the heck does that mean? Four things, note-takers, if you're a note-taker. One, that we know whose we are. God's good pleasure is that we would know whose we are. Image-bearers of the living God. God's will for us is to know that you and I are the apples of his eye. That we're created for good, meaningful work. Loving others, caring for the earth, being creative. Planning duets of cello and piano. Investing in your children's lives, you parents and grandparents. And friends of the church who help raise our kids, thank you. Business owners. Out of work people. Retired people. All walks of life. There's meaning. There's deeper level because you are made in God's image to be creative and do good. That's, it's God's will for us to know that, to live into that. Second thing is God's will for us is to be in good relationship with him. I know that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, after humans rebelled in the garden, God has been the initiator on his rescue mission to woo us back into relationship with him. I mean, this God died to rescue us. He knows the best way to live in relationship with Him and others is to live the Sermon on the Mount. So when we pray, Your good pleasure be done on earth as it is in heaven, we might pray that, Lord, Your Sermon on the Mount life be done in my life as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is in heaven. Third thing is when we pray for the Father's good pleasure or His will to be done, we're praying that the world 
would know Jesus. We're reminded in John's Gospel that if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. When we wonder what God is like, take a look at Jesus. That's another great point. Whenever we're struggling with this Father language, like God is Father, and you know, there's myriad reasons why He's chosen to reveal Himself in that way, but for most of us, that can be a real stumbling block when you think literally what our dads are like, right? Like, I have a great dad, but... Every earthly dad is going to fail us at some point in time. Right? But so, so when we conceive of this language, how am I supposed to, to know God loves me as Father? What we can do is look to Jesus in His life and say, Wow, that's what the Father's like? The one who washes feet? The one who lays his life down for the weak? The one who lays his life down for me? Okay, I can start to get my head around that a little bit. Fourth, the Father's will is that we would have eternal life through faith in Jesus. He didn't just die so we could hang out and have cool prayer times and stuff. He died that through faith we could have eternal life, abundant life with Him. John six thirty-eight through 40 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That of all he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this, check this out, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's God's good pleasure, that we would come to trust Jesus unto salvation. And that the world would do that. Now, the incredible thing about God's will is that we would experience such eternal life beginning now on earth as it is in heaven. This deep relationship with Him beginning now, not just after we die. Through this prayer, Jesus is inviting us into relationship with the Father, and in a relationship where we can be part of changing the world through petitioning on behalf of our brothers and sisters and those who, who aren't raising their voice up to God, we can petition the Father, the Creator. So there's two invitations I want to extend to us. First, as a preacher of Scripture, I invite you to receive afresh Jesus' invitation to help change the world by praying to the world changer. The world changer who is also our Father. That's meaningful vocation. That gives prayer some bite. Okay? Second, if you've never before considered the Lord's prayer as good news of eternal life, I invite you to repent, to turn around from seeking your own fame, your own kingdom, and your own will, and begin to seek first God and His kingdom. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you never cease to amaze us. You do things so upside down from what we're used to, and thankfully, you do. Lord, we're... I might expect um, a passage about power or a list of things to do. You give us an invitation 
to recognize the things you've already done, the things that you already do. You invite us into your family, and you invite us into your work. You give us, as Pascal says, the dignity of causation. Thank you, Lord, uh, for including us in that important work. I just continue our prayer from last week about barriers in our lives that prevent us from really believing how much you love us, how much the Father loves us. And I pray that you would continue to break down those walls in us. That you would help us to see how loved we are and how loved other people are. Amen.